host, Lindsay Rowland. Today we have Rachel Brummer with us. This guest absolutely fascinates me. She is a medical safety expert at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and communications lead for the American Society of Pharmacovigilance. Pharmacovigilance. Okay, <laughs> close. She also is a writer for Med Shadow and Drug Watch. Rachel has become a nationally recognized advocate for the voiceless from her personal experiences with medical harm, domestic violence, and sexual assault. She turned pain into purpose by founding Courage to Continue in January 2020, whose mission is to empower individuals, overcome trauma, and encourage social change through thought-provoking films, public service, announcements, and public speaking. Hi, Rachel. Thank you for being here today. Hi, Lindsay. Thank you for having me. So let's talk, let's start a little bit. I know I kind of did like a quick bio on you, but let's kind of go back and talk a little bit about who Rachel Brummert is. And then we'll talk about from there, how we kind of connected and we'll take it into like the next thing. So I'll let you start. I don't even know where to start, you know, but my, my name is Rachel. I'm from New Jersey. I live in North Carolina and I'm a very passionate advocate, usually stemming from something that happened to me personally. And then, you know, when I find out that it happens to other people, I kind of feel like I'm on this big mission and I need to use a platform to do that. So that's kind of how everything we're going to be talking about today came about. Okay, so let's go back a little bit. So because I did ask you ahead of time and we can talk about this, let's talk about your health issues and like the last year and kind of where that started with the advocacy. I mean, my my health issues started a long time ago. In 2006, I took an antibiotic that ended up disabling me. So then I started kind of getting into what the healthcare industry looks like, you know, why certain medications are safer than others and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But over the last year, I did have COVID last year. My story went viral, like no pun intended. So I became very passionate about talking about that and making sure that people make a decision that's right for for them. So yeah, I mean, I I, I do have a lot of health problems and I, you know, I became an advocate for that. And that's kind of how I got into, you know, working with health and human services. And it, it all it all kind of tied together later. I don't know that I can compact it like right now, but as we talk about it, it'll, it'll all kind of tie in. So how did your COVID story end up going viral? Well, I'm in the media pretty often because of my work. And I mentioned to one of the reporters here in Charlotte, North Carolina, that, you know, I was feeling really sick and I was going to go get a COVID test. And he goes, tell me more about that. And I said, you know, I don't understand it because I only came in contact with literally three people. I guess that sort of made my story a little more unique is that I literally only came in contact with three people. There's no way to know where where I got it, but it was, you know, first it was, well, maybe my husband was a carrier from someone at work and he wasn't showing symptoms. I got groceries delivered. Maybe the person who delivered it was the one that, that I contracted it from. And the other one was that I went to a CVS pharmacy to pick up medication for one of my health conditions. So the story went out, he interviewed me for it and it got picked up internationally. That was very overwhelming. I've become sort of a poster child for COVID ever since then. (laughs) Now, when I get interviewed for any of my work, the first question is, well, I heard you had COVID too. (laughs) Yeah. So it's interesting how you sort of like were already a mouthpiece for the medical community. And then now you 
yeah, you added COVID on top of it. And I think that was one of the components is just that, you know, I, I am in the media quite often and my name is out there and, you know, it just sort of launched from, from there, I think. So what do you do for your day-to-day job? Well, I work for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. So I work for the Food and Drug Administration and I go over, I analyze adverse event reports for medical devices. And then I also consult with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta on antibiotic resistance and proper prescribing of antibiotics. Again, you know, that that's stemming from what happened to me with the antibiotics. So my work is based in public health, public safety, you know, weighing risk benefit and just kind of looking into things. And so that, that's what I do all day long is analyze things. You create documentaries. Let's go. That, let's talk about that. And you created your own company to do this. Or can you just kind of walk me through that? Because that's like a very interesting element off of like your professional career and, and you know, the, your time in the news. So how did how did that kind of play out? I think I mentioned earlier, you know, I've been through a lot in my life. I've been through domestic violence and sexual assault and medication harm and I always kind of wanted to find a healthy outlet for that. So, you know, I started writing, my story would get out in the news and I thought, well, this is really interesting how they do that because they tell someone's story, but they also go into what the backstory is and why something happens. So I kind of wanted to be on the other side of that and, and be the one to look into things and to tell other people's stories for things that are personal to me. So, but like, you know, in order to do a film, you need financial backing, right? So I can't just ask for money and be like, well, this is going to go in my bank account. And this is, you can't do that. You know? So I created a company and it's called Courage to Continue. It's an LLC and it's about giving a platform for people who needed a voice, whether it's through filmmaking, whether it's public service announcements, you know, I do a lot of public speaking. So I'm using it for that platform as well. And I fell in love with filmmaking kind of by accident that I fell into it, but I love it. And I can't imagine doing it any other way. There's a visual art to it. There's only so much that you can tell in writing. When I interview people, you can't see the pain in their eyes if I'm just writing an article. So that's kind of why I wanted the visual aspect of it also. What are you currently working on? I'm working on two films. One is called Every 73 Seconds, and that's about my own experience with sexual assault. I then started working on a film called Moral Pedestal because as I was working on Every 73 Seconds, I started going public with my story about it. And I said, it's okay to come forward. Matter of fact, when I reported my assault to the police, the media was with me. And I wanted to show there's no shame in this. You shouldn't be afraid to say what happened to you and to sort of eliminate the stigma. So, you know, I started becoming a little more vocal on Twitter about it. And I've had, I had people from the military contact me and they said, you know what? Sexual assault happens more than you'll ever know in the military. Now, I'm not in the military. I don't understand the military. I didn't know anything about it. So I said, you don't understand it either. So you're good. You're in good company. Yeah. Right. So yeah. And it kind of piqued my curiosity. I'm like, you know, I'm sure it's, you know, it happens even more and it's probably even more underreported in the military. And I didn't give it a whole lot of thought because I was so focused on, on my story, you know, but more and more people started tagging me on Twitter and asking me to read the I am Vanessa Guillen stories. And I saw that there was a, a lot of pain there and that military members don't necessarily have an outlet because they're worried about retaliation. And it's different than a civilian 
court. So then, you know, the more I read, the more, you know, I had to go down the rabbit hole because that's just my personality. (laughs) I felt like I needed to use my voice, use my name and use my influence to tell those stories because no one else is. And I don't have to fear retaliation. I mean, I'm not in the military. I'm U.S. government, but I'm not military. (laughs) And I figured, you know, I figured I I owed people that, you know, because I, I remember what it's like to not have a voice. And it's really empowering when you can find it. I don't know. It's sort of, it sort of happened all organically because I just started, you know, this happened to me and this is why I went to the police and this is why I did this. And I know, but then this whole other aspect came into it. So it wasn't just sexual assault in the military. It was, you know, there's suicide, there's hazing, there's uh, unexplained deaths, there's, you know, court martials and this whole thing. There was this whole other aspect that I didn't understand and wanted to find out about. So that's why I wanted to do a whole separate film on that because there's so many more layers to the military issues than there are with straight sexual assault. So I want to address military housing. I want to address sexual assault, how it's reported in the military. I want to, you know, I found out that, you know, command sort of decides whether a case is going to go forward. That's kind of a conflict of interest. You don't want to investigate one of your own. So I thought, this isn't this isn't right. This is something that I have to take on. Uh, yeah, and we can kind of go into like that. Kind of is a good a good segue into how you and I met. But I thought I thought it was interesting. Yeah, when I first met you and I was looking at your profile, just sort of like where because you, people do take interest in the military, but it's it's always interesting to find out why people do that aren't military. And it's I think it's always fun to look at. I found some of the most um, effective advocacy. Um, Never Alone's one of them. You are those that are we're not military. And so they can kind of take a look at from the outside perspective and be like things that were okay for our culture for years or things that we've always done. They could you could take a good look at it and say, well, why do you do this? Well, what you know, and I th- and I think that that can really help perspective, bringing a fresh perspective to the table, because I think there's a ton of brainwashing that goes on just over time in the culture that we don't, we're like, okay, this, maybe this doesn't make sense. And then we also have, there's also, I'm not a huge feminist, but there's also, you know, we're, we're like men are leading us constantly. And so sometimes it's nice to have a female perspective because it's, you know, our brains think differently. Mm-hmm. But I do want to go into how you and I met. So I want to talk about, it's called Moral Pedestal, right? Correct. So you, so I'll just tell our audience real quick. So you and I met because I'm working on the Austin Stump case for my podcast. And I think I posted it on Twitter and you like kind of wrote something that you were working on as well. And I had seen that you were working on it because you had posted it, like maybe a short blurb or an interview or something with the family. So then you and I kind of got together and started like talking about it and I'll just go from there. But so how did you get involved with the Stump family and how did you get involved in the documentary and where are you, where are you at currently with it? Well, I'll start with the, with the Stump family. They, they reached out to me, they found me and a bunch of families that I'm working with, you know, Brandon Caserta, I'm working with his family as well. And they, I think found out on Twitter that I was doing this project and someone had retweeted it and said, you know, come forward and tell your story. And they wrote me emails and they, they, they kind of gave me little bits and pieces about the story. And I, but there was always something in the, the way that they told the story that sort of snapped my attention. It wasn't like just a story anymore. It was, it was, there's a systemic issue within the military and this is the face that we can put to it. 
so that people understand what our military members go through. So, you know, they were saying, well, you know, the army wrote it off as a suicide. And I'm like, well, it sounds like you question that. So tell me, tell me about that. And they, they kind of went more into it. And I, of course, had to go down those rabbit holes. And, you know, I, and since I'm a civilian, you know, I reach out to the army and it'd be like, well, what happened here? And why did you do it this way and not this way and this way? And like, I started getting really annoying about it. <laughs> uh, so my sister lives in Tampa, Florida, and I went down there and the Stump family lives near Tampa. So I'm like, well, let me just do a quick interview with them and kind of see what this is about and see if I want to invest my time in this. And I went to interview them and their pain was palpable. And I remember this so much. And they were telling me stories about Austin. And then they, you know, we got into the more serious conversations about, you know, the investigation and his death and how it affected the family. And then they said, well, they found him hanging and he was sitting down. And I'm like, okay, hold up. Like that, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. And I'm trying to find all these plausible explanations for it. And I can't. So I reached out to the army and I'm like, well, what's, like, what's your take on this? Can you tell me, you know, can you just send me reports or can you send me a comment of some kind? And they always kind of gave me like a PR answer. And when that happens, I understand that to be that they don't want to talk to you about it. They don't want it known. And I'm not okay with that. Like, it should be known. So you know, I kind of kept hammering at it and pulling at the different strings. And I got invested in this family because the more they told me, the more things just didn't make sense. So, you know, I listened to the 911 call. I looked at the crime scene photos. And, you know, I'm not here to reopen anybody's case necessarily. But I, there's enough there that I think a proper investigation was not done. So that's that's kind of why I want to tell Austin's stories, because there might be an opportunity here to change the way that the military, you know, investigates things. I don't know if it was a suicide. If it was, was any mental health offered to him? Was he able to get any help? If it was a hazing gone wrong, what what's considered hazing in the military and what makes it get to the, you know, I understand that it happens, but does it come to a point where someone fails to render aid and it goes too far? So that's something I wanted to know also. And then the family believes it may be a homicide. And, you know, so there's all these theories as to what happened and they don't have any answers. And I want to try to get them those answers, you know, whether, you know, if it is a suicide, they accept that. If it's a hazing, they accept that, but they want to know what happened. And I think that's fair. Yeah, I agree with you. And I know you've listened to the podcast with them that Mm -hmm. I did. And of course I feel a connection with the family as well, but yeah, I agree. I do feel that way as well that they, I don't, I don't even think they would be upset if it was a hazing. I mean, yes, upset because we're upset that someone died, but I think, I think it's the truth. I think it's the lies, which I, I believe that they're being told or they were consistently. I, I had somebody listen to it, a friend listened to the podcast last night and he found it very interesting, actually sort of heartbreaking about the part where the bracelets came out, the memorial bracelets, and they had the wrong date on them for the death. And the family was like, this isn't the date that he died. And maybe, I don't, we, I don't know if the military didn't remember that they lied to the family. I don't know if it was an admin error, but just, it's sort of, like he was touched by that part of it, just thinking about that. Like you get this bracelet and it doesn't even have the date that he really died. And so how, what part of the story 
is real and what part is fake. And I think that's what they're going through. It's part of the process of healing, not that you will ever heal, but that it's like, what part of this is true and what part of this is false. And then where do you decipher? And then what do you do with that? And that's where I felt like I needed to step in because I try to remain as neutral as I can. I don't, I don't have anything invested one way or the other, how something goes. So I can tell it from a more objective position. And I could, you know, I could talk to the family and get information from them. I could talk to the army and get information from them. And then I could put it all together, tell the story and just say, here's all the information, do with it what you will. But in that process of going by evidence and not really where my emotions are taking me, I noticed that there was a lot of inconsistencies in what the family was being told. And that sort of tug at me as well. Like they don't even know what day Austin died because the army, I don't, doesn't know, or, yeah, I'm not sure what happened. And then, you know, in one version of it, you know, the roommate is deployed and another version, he was not deployed. He was there. I listened to the 911 call, which sounded really kind of off to me. And it didn't match with some of the accounts I was hearing from the family with what the army was saying about it. So it just kind of, it just kind of bothered me enough to be like, all right, I need to, I need to sort through all of this and figure out what is emotion on the part of the family and what actually happened. And, you know, they're never going to get closure. Like, that's not going to happen. This is a grieving family. They're never going to have closure, but they deserve to know what happened to their son because he, you know, he spent his life protecting our country. You know, he sacrificed himself to, to do this. You know, he, he knew that he wanted to serve his country and this is how the family is treated. Like, I, I don't know. It doesn't sit right with me. Yeah. And I think you and I have talked about this with our combined efforts, I think with your documentary, which I still have a few more questions to ask you about that. Mm -hmm. And with like the podcast, I mean, I think we're both hoping that we get somebody to come forward or some, somebody that maybe has like had regret over just maybe knowing more details about this case than we do and would shed some light on it. Do you think that that is something that you, we, we might see down the road or what are your thoughts on that? I do. And it, it takes it takes one person to become sort of a whistleblower and so to sort of come forward. And then it opens the gates for other people to come forward as well. I've conducted a lot of interviews. So anytime someone's name or a situation comes up, I will research it. I will track that person down. I will interview them. I will ask for their paperwork. And I have spoken to a lot of people who said, I will talk to you, but you must keep me anonymous because I'm still active duty. So, you know, we're sort of in the process of having people trust me to protect their identity. And then they slowly kind of open up to me. So, you know, little, little things are starting to trickle in, but I think it's going to take that one, that one person that says, this has been on my mind for years and I need to talk about it. And I think it's going to open up the, the floodgates of people coming forward about other things too. So where are you at it with the, with the well, you you would call it a documentary, right? Is that what you? Um, it's a good but yeah, I wanted it to be a documentary, but I think it's going to be a docu series at this point, just because there's so many layers to it. So you know, one episode will be housing, one will be sexual assault, one will be hazing, one will be you know whatever. So, but I envision a docu series with this because of all the layers. Where are you in the Austin stump? I have interviewed them in person twice. I plan on going again. 
I've, I've been in touch with the Army about, you know, pictures that have come to light and some information that came to light. So I've been talking with them and they're in the process of working with Fort Benning. So it's kind of all, it's kind of all communication at this point. And then I, I did offer to interview in person people from the military so they could tell their side of it. And I think that's only fair is to not only, you know, I want to see this from all sides to get the bigger picture because nothing's going to get done unless you see what the entire problem is. So I made offers to do that. And they, you know, they send me to their PR people and say, well, you know, we'll think about it or we'll send you this. So that's where we're at with that right now. What does something like that cost as far as like one episode? It costs tens of thousands of dollars to do any kind of film docu-series, you know, visual arts kind of thing. You know, right now it's, it's mostly me. So I'm director, producer, editor, fundraiser, sound person. You know, so when I, when I travel to interview the families, it's not always easy to carry all my gear. So I would have to hire local camera crews to sort of help me out with that. And then there's production costs. There's, you know, editing sound and getting the sound and the, the visual together. And then there's permits and licenses and you know rights to to music or you know archived footage from news things they they all cost money you know I in the beginning I used almost all my money and that's not that's not really all that feasible anymore so we do need a lot of financial help to get this going and I know it's lofty and I know it's big ideas but you know if you've done any kind of research on me you know that I will see things to the end and I think big and I make things happen as much as I can well, we love big ideas here, so we support you. But I do for our audience, if someone wanted to donate or was passionate about the awesome stump case or others, is there a place to go to contribute to your funding for these documentaries? Yeah, so uh, my website is www.rachelbrummer.com. It's R-A-C-H-E-L-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-T. And I have a link on there to the projects that I'm working on, where I've done interviews, how far I am in things, what cities I plan to go to, how much of a budget I'm going to need. And there's a button on there that says you can donate through GoFundMe or PayPal. So any donations, it all goes to the film. I do not take a salary and I don't plan. So this is all going to go toward production. And if you make a contribution of any kind, it will come up as courage to continue. Do you, is how easy is it to go out and get sponsors? Because I did an interview with Steve Moon and he did, I believe it was out of the fight. The movie was, and it was a, it was, you know, it was a low end movie, but it it was, it was about the soldier with PTSD that comes home and the second and third order effects of, of the PTSD. But yeah. So, so do people, do you, can you go ask for sponsors? Like, how does that work or not? I don't even know. I'm actually, um, I'm trying to figure out how grants work, but I need a grant writer. Like this is, that's another thing that I have to take on. So it's like director, producer, grant writer. I'm exploring responsible ways for this to happen. You know, I'm kind of careful about who I accept money from because I do not want to be in a position where money's going to influence which way this film goes. So I make it very clear this is evidence-based. This is things I have to corroborate. This is things that I need to feel comfortable putting out there and having my name out there because I can't, I can't put your spin on it just because you gave me. So that's why I'm trying to be very careful about where I get my funding. So I decided this is going to be an independent film and I'm going to have control over that. 
No, I think that's a really good point there because I've been actually thinking about this and it's not exactly like your case, but people ask me like, are you going to take on sponsors for your podcast? And I'm like, well, actually uh, financially, I'm not interested. I don't need the money. Um, not trying to make any money off of it. But then I'm like, well, if I do, then what about when I want to get to put my, uh, my, my, my politics, right? Because that's what I like about my podcast is that I can put up my politics. And if you're going to be on my podcast, usually I will say to you, like, have you looked at my page? Have you seen the, you know, I'm a Republican. So if you're we cool had that, I'm sure you saw my page, but I have had one person who I'm not going to say who, but they were on the podcast. And then we're just like blown away about the Andrea Goldstein story I want to run and about me looking into veteran service organizations that promoted the shot and why and who's paying them behind the scenes. And that person was like, whoa, I'm not interested in this because they're starting their own uh, nonprofit. And I was like, okay, that's fine. But like, you know, you, and the, the person that had connected us was like, well, you, you, I warned you or, you know, gave you some mm-hmm. fair warning. So yeah, it is interesting to think about. And so to me, like a sponsor and what they would bring to the table doesn't, does nothing for me because then I would have to, you know, basically censor myself. And I didn't start the podcast to censor myself and I have my own following. I'm not saying I'm everybody's flavor, nor do I want to be, but I think there's a voice for what I'm doing. And just like, you feel like there's a voice and I agree with you what you're doing, but like, I can have my political views and I can still support the Austin stump case and I can still support the tape. So I feel like I, even though there is a little boundary between the two of them, there really isn't because at this point, you know, being in DC, you're just, everything's politics, but, and then even the, the brand or even the Brandon act and even the Austin stump case, there's a lot of politics that play into it. And mm-hmm. when, you know, I actually do some lobbying on the case, I'll have to find probably somebody that is willing to, you know, maybe open up a congressional inquiry or take the next step, but they will have to play into the politics of, the military trying to keep this quiet. Do we want to highlight a suicide? Do we want to highlight a hazing? There are a lot of second and third order effects to that. But I did want to bring up, this is a funny story. I'll let you tell it. Is it bawling? And so my friend who was listening to the podcast last night said, he's like, I can't believe that you explained what bawling was to Mr. and Mrs. Stump. And I was like, well, actually somebody explained it to me. That's kind of my fault. (laughs) I am going to let you go ahead with that. And please include to the the picture that we're looking at that the kind of started the whole thing. I don't know if I have the picture, but I did send it to you. Oh, Um, I have it. We posted it on the website. Yeah. So (laughs) I, I, I can't even believe I'm having these conversations. So um, <laughs> it's really funny to me, actually, but go ahead. <laughs> so the Stump family sent me a picture of what I imagine is hazing, but I don't know because I'm not military. I don't have context. I don't know what this is about, but I'm looking at it and I'm like, the guy in the looked terrified. So it didn't seem like all fun and games to me. And I'm like, well, what does hazing mean? Like, I'm old. Like, I'm I, hazing to me means like putting shaving cream in your shoe. Like, I, what do I know? You know. So, you know, being the, given that I have to kind of get the other side of things, I contacted the army and I said, you know, listen, I got this. I got this photograph. Can you give me context? Can you tell me what this is about? And I said, the only thing that I know about it is that there was bowling involved, and the stunt family that bawling was wrapping someone entirely in duct tape into a little ball. So that's what I went into it thinking. 
So I was like, well, why would you duct tape someone into a ball? So I, I contact my guy at the army. And so I'm like, well, this is the information that I'm looking for. And I would also like to get a statement on hazing and balling. There was a pregnant pause. Like, I thought he'd hung up because like, he was just silent. And then he goes, ah, and I'm like, what rang a bell for you? He goes, I know what balling is. And I'm like, well, like, why would you, why would you duct tape someone? He goes, well, yeah, it it, it involves duct tape. And I'm like, but why? Like, I, I still like explain this to me. So I understand. And I'm like, I need to put context to this picture anyway, because I see duct tape and I see legs and I, you know, so his uncomfortableness made me really curious and I can picture him kind of blushing and I go, do you want to, can you tell me what balling actually is? And he goes, and it was a bunch of that for a little while. And I'm like, well, you can tell me. He goes, is this, you know, can you keep my name out of it? Can you like keep it off the record? And I said, yeah. And he knows me enough that I will keep people's names anonymous if they ask me to. So he says, well, balling is when people in your unit bind you with duct tape and put duct tape around your testicles. I am not usually stunned into silence, but like this time I was like, I was like, what did I just hear? And I'm like, you're telling me that you, you use duct tape on people's testicles. And I have this vision <laughs> in my head and I'm trying not to laugh about it because this like poor guy is trying to explain this to me. But apparently that's what it is. And so then I went to the Army's media people and I'm like, so I would like you to send me copies of your hazing policies and explain to me what balling is. Like knowing what I just heard, like I want to see how they're going to explain this to me. But it was one of those awkward, bizarre conversations that I never thought I would have in my life, like asking a guy in the Army what balling is. And now I know what it is. And now it's like, you can't unsee something like this, you know? So, but it was, I mean, it was funny at the time, but then when I thought more about it, I'm like, well, if you're taping testicles together, I can't imagine that any person would consent to that. So is that sexual assault? So it turned from like this funny way of learning what it is into something a little more sinister. And that's kind of the thread that that's, that's been throughout this whole pr- process is trying to find something out and finding out how sinister it is. You asked me like, well, what's balling? And I'm like, well, yeah, so this is what balling is. And, you know, I never want to hear about balls ever again, like not soccer balls, not like that. Like the word balls, like cannot come up in the rest of this conversation. I remember you and I were kind of like chuckling over it, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. I, 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 know that this, I, I didn't know that the family didn't know what it was you know and I probably well they're they were good sports so that's why I brought it up um I should have let you give it to them because <laughs> you found the information out but I couldn't resist and I, I yeah but they, I thought that they were good sports about it I don't think they were super weird about it I just hadn't yeah. really put it you know you know how you do podcasts you just don't really think about what you're saying at the time mm-hmm. well, I knew what I was saying I just probably maybe whatever they were cool about it but yeah, it's definitely it was, yeah. interesting right it was it's not often that I'm stunned into absolute silence. Like I, I, I honestly didn't know what to say. And 
when there was a pause, I was like, uh, and I go, okay, then he goes, well, you asked. I'm like, true. I did ask. <laughs> so. No, you did ask. And I mean, I'm actually really glad we, we know, we know now and to go back to that photo. Well, first of all, it's disgusting. I can't imagine why another guy, as much as like, they have like the gay phobia thing and you know, the, these men do these Ranger battalion guys do like the mm-hmm. whole touching each other's balls things. Like it's a little weird to me, but I'm not going to like go into that like too much, but yeah, the picture is concerning. I've had people s- mention to me that it was, it looks like they're just horse playing in the barracks room. I completely disagree. And I've talked about this on other platform. So I'm not going to, you know, delve into it that quickly, but the equipment in the background, the age of the people doing the hazing, the actual duct tape, the, the, it looks very planned and organized. Those are not things like you would be horse playing in the barracks with. And so I just think that that picture, and then we've also seen the text messages that have gone that, that Austin had, which I'm actually surprised CID left on his phone that talk about, oh, this, my Ranger bat is still the only battalion that hazes. And I got my, you know, that guy got his butt kicked last night. I got, I got pretty beat up too, you know, just from, so yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's definitely something there. And I mean, that's what you and I are, are trying to figure Mm -hmm. out and everybody else that's involved in this. And so I guess we'll see what happens. Yeah, it's all kind of, it's, it's kind of tying together for me because, you know, they showed me the photo and there is obvious duct tape in the lower left-hand corner of the, the screen. Now, what I, what I thought it was at first was that they were pantsing him, but then, you know, I'm, I'm showing it to my husband. I'm showing it to some of my consultants. They go, that's duct tape. I'm like, duct tape. Well, I remember the family told me that when Austin was found in the closet, all his belongings were duct tape. So I'm like, well, here's the duct tape thing again. So if the duct tape picture that the family showed me was hazing, was Austin's death hazing that went wrong? Because somebody is dead here. But there's, there's the common theme of the duct tape that I, that I can't seem to find any plausible explanation for. So did they, you know, and, you know, the, the stunt family also told me of an incident where someone was wrapped in duct tape and it was around the guy's mouth and nose. And Austin was so unnerved by the whole thing that he said, no, we had like, this isn't right. We have to stop this. So, you know, it makes me wonder, can get, can hazing go too far? And if that's the case, what is the military going to do about that? Because every time these things come up, they say, we're working on it. We're aware of it. You know, mistakes were made. We're going to fix it. That's not good enough for me. What are you going to do about it? Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah, I try really hard not to get personally involved in the cases I'm investigating. But Austin's case really has my attention. And I really want to get to the bottom of it and figure out what's going on in the military. Well, I don't think that you can get involved in these cases and not get personally involved. I mean, I just think that that's bound to happen. Don't you think? I think in a way, but you know, at the beginning of this project, I did say that I, I don't want to come one way or another on the fence. Like I just want to take factual information that I can verify and put it together 
and maybe at least have legislation come from that. Like if nothing else, I'm getting awareness out there, but I'm hoping that it's going to actually lead to change because, you know, we're literally documenting all this stuff that's going on. But I try to, I try not to interject my own opinions and emotions into these interviews because I'm trying to be so objective. So I mean, in a way, you know, you get to know these families and you see the pain and you see that they're trusting you with telling their loved one's story, you know, and that's really powerful when somebody trusts you to do that. But it's it's a hard line to maintain, you know, caring so much about this family and wanting to help them so much and still trying to remain objective. And that's something that that I struggle with as a filmmaker sometimes. Yeah, I and I do think that you can be objective and still have an emotional att- attachment to the story. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think that you can do both, but I think it's good that you're aware of that you don't let it taint or influence your decision. Because I mean, at the end of the day, whether it's suicide or whether it's hazing, we still lost a soldier. Mm-hmm. And not that, you know, th- that either one is easier than the other one, but it's still tragic. So yeah, it was just everything put together. It's, you know, the people who were in the the unit, you know, they, they were all transferred somewhere else. And I'm finding out that that's a common theme as well. You know, if there's a sexual assault, you know, people are just, you know, transferred out and then you, you know, you can't really track down what the truth is because everybody's scattering and everybody's saying, you know, no, we, you know, we're not going to go further with this. And it just, it, it weighed on me a lot. You know, the very people who, who protect us, like who, who's protecting them? I, they're not being protected by the military, I don't feel. Yeah, I mean, I agree, definitely. Yeah, definitely. It's easy for me to say though, because I'm a civilian, but I, but I think that gives me an advantage is that I can look at it from an objective position and be like, that, that, that can't, that can't be the way things are, you know, like the, the mentality of we've always done it this way is a dangerous thing. Very dangerous. And I also believe I was looking at kind of the dates of when Austin Stump happened and then some of the other cases that have gotten more publicity in the last couple of years. And I think it's interesting because I kind of think, I don't know if you're familiar with the Richard Holiday case, but he was missing He's missing, they think maybe he crossed the border with a weapon, but he's missing from his barracks around COVID time. I think we're at about a year now that he's been missing. His mother is amazing. She does like two two videos a day. They've done digs in Mexico. They've whatever. And it just so happens that the, the general, that the division commander is actually somebody I serve with in 10th Mountain. Um, but I, I, I just wonder had this case happened in the last year or in this time frame, if it would have, if it would have received a different response, because, you know, as they, when they were looking for Ian or Vanessa Gee, and they found the other guy that they thought went AWOL, but here Mm -hmm. he'd actually been murdered or they don't know. And so I just think it's interesting that, you know, time means everything. And had they, had they maybe had these other cases going on, it would have gotten more attention. It wouldn't Mm -hmm. have just been slid under as a suicide. But I also think there's like room for some legislation here as well. I think there's a place maybe for some legislation in the regards where these suicides maybe have to be looked at as a murder first or have to be because if you we you know we we got we have some inside information on Austin but it looks like that they never even investigate as a murder I mean if it's unless it's a complete cover-up you know but that's a different kind of investigation 
But the fact that it doesn't look like they ever looked at anything as being a murder. So now all of all that evidence is destroyed. I mean, he was cremated. We, you know, the mm-hmm. barracks room was cleaned up. They only have half of some of his stuff back. So I think like now you can't go back. It will be, it'll be much harder to go back and look at it from a murder perspective. And I think that a lot of these cases, I, I know there's legislation in place right now to, instead of calling soldier AWOL, that they be looked at as missing and somebody actually looks for them. And so I think that there's like room for legislation here where these suicides need to be be looked at a little bit more closely as other things, other things first. So in Asia, Graham was another thing like, you know, that whole, that was a whole, mm-hmm. yeah. So that's kind of, it's, it's just interesting, the timing, but um, so let's recap a little bit. You are working on every, is it every 73 seconds? Every 73 seconds. And that's about sexual assault. It's about sexual assault and it includes my own story with it. Okay. And then you're working on a moral pedestal, which is, right. and then is, and no, it's, it's, it's military reform. It's about, you know, finding out the checks and balances. Okay. All right. All right. Well, I don't want to keep you too much longer. I know you're a busy lady and you're not feeling that great, but is there anything, thank you for being with us today too. I know it's mm-hmm. not fun to do podcasts when you don't feel well. Is there anything else we, you want to say before I let you go? And we know, we know where to find you. I'm going to put up your link if someone's interested in um, supporting you financially um, or just emotionally or, you know, everything. So is there any last minute um, thoughts that you want to leave our audience? Just that I, I am listening. I, I am invested in what is happening to you. I may not always understand it, but I will support you in any way that I can. I will support legislation that helps you. I will bring things to light that maybe you just need someone to speak for you because that's what I do. I, I want to be the voice for the voiceless. So I just would like your listeners to know that I am willing to do that. And I am willing to keep people anonymous so that more information can come in and that, you know, I want to keep you safe. I think that's a great message. So thank you for that. All right, Rachel, well, we appreciate having you on today and we will continue to follow you. And I look forward to working on our own endeavors with the Austin Stump case. Today. Yeah, we were, we were talking about some kind of collaboration. So I'm looking forward to that for sure. Definitely. All right, listeners, like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast, find us on iTunes or anywhere you listen to your podcast. You into veteran and military advocacy or need some lobbying done, check us out. We also do a, we also do a lobbying element in Washington, D.C. in addition to the podcast. Thank you for tuning in and see you next time. Okay.